Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 10. I'm Dave. And I'm Ashley. And we're a couple getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's pop culture blind spots and sharing the musty movies and guilty pleasures from our pasts. Each week, one of us chooses a movie. This time I chose... Reservoir Dogs from Reservoir 1992. Dogs. Reservoir Dogs from 1992, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, so I didn't see this movie because I was busy being 11 when it came out. It's completely not inappropriate for an 11 year old. So it's a good thing that, I, um, so we can't compare notes about how you experienced this as an 11 year old. No, no, it's probably my, my parents. You didn't have a favorite, uh, Mr. Pink or Mr. White or anything when you were 11? No, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why, this is why I've chosen this movie because for me, this falls into the, the camp of like, I can't believe you've never seen this movie. Particularly because Ashley happens to, I'd say, admire a lot of Tarantino's movies. Well, I don't know if I would say admire. Can you you tell me about I, your stance on you Tarantino? You know, it's I. There are some movies of his that I like a lot, and then there's some movies that I don't like a lot. So, <laughs> I guess what I was going for is that you're familiar with yeah. his entire career. Like you've seen just about. I want to say you've seen every other film. I've seen. So the first one I saw was Pulp Fiction, okay. um, and it, it would have come out on DVD when I was like, so it came out in 94. Maybe I saw it on DVD when I was like 15, 16, somewhere in there. Um, probably without my parents knowing. Uh, <laughs> but then I've seen every other one, I believe. I don't think I've missed one since. Yeah, so. but somehow along the way, you never went back and saw the very first one. No, no. So this is a first film. So I'm curious to see <laughs> how I really want to know something about... Well, we'll get to your take on yeah. you know, how how knowing the rest of Tarantino's career and work like feeds into your experience of seeing his first film. But I guess I should say more about where I was at this point in my life yeah, and why so I chose why this. why did you choose this? I mean, <laughs> okay. besides the, the Quentin Tarantino thing. Well, I was, this again falls back in that period where I was a film student for the first time, this time as an undergrad at UC San Diego in the visual arts media program. It would have been, so was, this came out in 92, so I would have been a, a junior, you know, just mm. and about to head into my fourth year. So I had taken like all the lower division, like starting to make, you know, videos and we're actually shooting videos on tape. And I was about to take my classes on, you know, where you actually finally get to make 16 millimeter films, movie (laughs) films with movie cameras and, you know, learn the whole process. And so at this point, I was just absorbing everything. Everything was an influence. And this fell into the camp of... uh, of uh, a startling, like exciting kind of diff- altogether new and different feeling kind of film. Nothing else. There was really nothing else going on in, in American movies like this at the time. And for context, this is also around the same time as um, these all these guys all came up together. But Robert Rodriguez had uh, yes. around the time that he made El Mariachi. Uh-huh. So this was another thing that we were all super. Which I have seen. Yeah, yeah we were all super <laughs> excited about this, and you know. I remember talking about this down in the equipment room, you know, when you're waiting to check out your gear and stuff to go shoot over the weekend. Like, it's like, this guy made this movie for a few thousand bucks. And, you know, um, so that came out around then. Um, and I want to say Linklater and Slacker. Oh, okay. Shot Which I haven't here seen in Austin, Texas, yeah. where we now live all these years later was also another early influence. And it's this sort of this, you know, lower budget indie American film, all these new, like really movie inspired 
yeah. directors. And I, I don't think Linklater is the same kind of filmmaker as Rodriguez and Tarantino. No. But they all came up around the same time. Yeah. Um, so I remember seeing this movie in San Francisco, probably on a break between, I don't remember what month it came out. I saw it with my sister at a movie theater that doesn't exist anymore at the Lumiere on Polk Street. So I like this because just like we're sitting next to my bookcase right now with all of my books and DVDs. And I like to think that for a lot of my books, I still remember, like, you know, when I find, when I see an old copy, I'm looking at a Graham Greene book up there. Like, I remember where I bought that book. And yeah. so I remember I saw <laughs> the same thing with movies. <laughs> I remember seeing um, Reservoir Dogs for the first time at the Lumiere Theater. Um, the, one of the screening rooms, you know, the, the pipe makes, you know, when people flush the toilet, you'd hear water rolling by and stuff like that. And, like, we were sitting there with, with our hands, like, dug into the 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 handles of the chairs, you know, yeah, because you've got the torture scene, but you also have a movie that's just like got this energy. It's really violent and it's really in your face. And the dialogue is just like, we've never had this kind of dialogue that goes nowhere that this kind of banter that Tarantino did that just exposes character and obsession with pop culture and stuff like that. And I just walked out feeling like I had seen something new yeah and a oh, holy crap what is happening <laughs> yeah. so that and that was and then of course you're waiting for what's he going to do next and what he did next was pulp fiction we had to wait about two years yeah. i think okay sorry that was my soliloquy yeah. about reservoir dogs <laughs> well cool um so how did you exp- I don't know how you how did you experience this film at all i really don't know we have not talked about this we saw this two nights ago yeah and I don't really know how you took it at all. So, I mean, the first thing th- that I noticed, you know, it comes in and um, they're sitting at a cafe table and it's instantly recognizable as Tarantino because they've got the conversation going on about, you know, something that's, you know, unrelated to the fact that they're about to, you know, commit a big robbery or heist or something like that. Yes. Um, they're talking about uh, like a virgin by mm-hmm. Madonna. I call BS on this whole theory too. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, I don't, I don't agree with their uh, take on what like a virgin is about. But you know, they are, you know, gangster guys. So, <laughs> but instantly it's recognizable as Tarantino because you've got the moving camera moving around the table, you know. And it's it's funny because it's a little clunky, you know. It's not. You can tell that they don't have the nice equipment that you need. So there's like long periods where you're passing behind someone where the screen goes dark because you're actually behind someone's head and the camera can't. But then it, you know, it comes around their shoulder. Later on, he he does a much, you know, when he has better equipment, he's able to do this sort of thing. And I may be wrong, but yeah. that's also a, that's also a good way to cut the shot. Yeah, you know, so that you can pick up with the next section of the. So you you build in places where you can cut the camera to continue the take, so you yeah. can use the best parts and stuff. It's all Hitchcock rope era, yes. kind of thing, <laughs> which I've also seen. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but also a movie shot mostly on one yeah. set. <laughs> but I mean, you know, instantly it's Tarantino because of you can tell from the dialogue. I mean, I, you know, I grew I pretty much been watching him my whole sort of teenage years into adulthood. So it's very familiar to me. But that like is instantly like that sort of pop culture talking about stuff, 
you know, he used it again in Pulp Fiction when they talk about the cheeseburgers and, yeah. well, throughout the Pulp Fiction, you know, track. But, I mean. So, we totally forgot to do this, but I think we're also kind of assuming that most people are familiar, familiar with Reservoir with Dogs. But, like, uh, one or two line synopsis of the movie, you've got six strangers on a heist together. Yeah. Well, there's actually eight if you count the bosses. Um, they go only by colors. They don't know each other's names. So you've got Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel, and Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, Mr. Blonde, Michael Madsen, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, and um, a, a couple other expendables. Yes. I don't think that's a spoiler. They're lost yeah. almost right away. And they're, um, it's, the, it's a jewelry heist that goes totally wrong. They end up, it's a, it's a bloodbath. Their survivors end up in a warehouse, one of them critically wounded, Tim Roth, they they have been ratted out by someone. How come the cops seem to be there before the heist even started? And then it's like the deconstruction yeah. of, of of what happened and all the the energy of these guys, completely paranoid and knowing that they're totally up shit creek. Yeah. Well, they they that's another thing that's that, and it's it's funny that it's in his very first movie because it's characteristic of all his films, I think, as far as I know. But you have where events happen out of order. So the first scene is them before the heist. And then the very next scene is them after the heist when everything has gone wrong. And then there's like some flashbacks throughout uh, to where you find out like how he pulled the people to get, how they pulled these gangsters together in the first place. And there's a, a, a few flashes back to what, to, to actual things that happened directly after the heist. They never show the heist at all, you know. Yeah, which was a big thing that all the reviews talked about <laughs> yeah. at the time. And they're like, you never even show the thing. He's like, well, I'm not, I don't show it because yeah. actually it's not about that. Yeah. It's about these guys <laughs> ratting each other out after the fact. But the thing I totally forgot to mention, this thing you're saying about the time yeah. structure and the nonlinear, that was another thing that completely like excited me because I you, you were only sort of seeing that thing in like, like I don't think I'd even seen the Euro major European art movies and stuff yeah. that did stuff like that. But I guess shortly thereafter, I would have seen um, Bertolucci's The Conformist for the first time, which I haven't showed you and we no. might do on this show at some point. Um, but that's one that just has, you know, flashback C within flashback B with, you know, <laughs> I remember reading a journal article about this at the time because I was so like excited by the time structure of like that had a, a, a chart that showed this has a, this scene goes into this scene goes into this scene which flashes forward to the and you yeah so i mean that's the conformist well, this but was, this was doing that sort of a thing too and that was hugely influential i mean i think that our films that we have now wouldn't be like they are like blue valentine it wouldn't exist without that sort of influence of the playing with time and flashbacks and and that sort of thing i you know i it I, I would guess changed film. The other thing that I, I was, cause I was reading the Wikipedia page before we started watching this, but I, the, the sentence is that it was um, controversial in its time for um, uh, its language. So um, j she laughed about when she read this just now. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> this was before movies yeah. had every sentence have like, you know, the F bomb three times. Well, so. And violence is the other part. So I, <clears throat> You know, essentially grew up in a world where Quentin Tarantino was one of the predominant filmmakers. So, like, he so influenced the violence and language in movies that, like, to me, like, they're talking about how people walked out during the torture scene. No, no, no. 
you know, this is, ab- <laughs> this is why this conversation is fascinating <laughs> yeah. to me because I absolutely cannot experience this the way you are. Yeah. But I do remember like this was completely out of hand, like ultra violent stuff for the time. And they were, they were writing like um, features in film comment and sight and sound about this new age of like ultra violent, like this cinema. Yeah. You know, I think we'd had Scarface before and, and oh, a yeah. few things like that. But, um, I think we're, you know, and then you, you get around this time, also Harvey Keitel, you get Bad Lieutenant and mm. um, also really violent Abel Ferrara movie. You know, I mean, and um, uh, the John Woo movies, which are yeah. kind of comic violence, but they're yeah. very, you know, gunplay violent and lots of, mm. you know, head shots and squibs and stuff like that. But this with the torture scene. Yeah. Well, there then- had really never been done. I mean, I don't think in mainstream, like just general rated R cinema, you were not seeing this kind of stuff yet. This is the birth of that. That's in- that's so interesting to me because like I just, I don't know. I, it just seems like that's always been part of, you know, and I think that, you know, because Quentin Tarantino's his he draws on those sort of B movies from the 70s, which I think... You know, it wasn't very realistic back then, but I think that the B-movies were a lot more violent or, or tried to be, you know, than than the mainstream movies at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the scene, you know, with the blood in the backseat, you know, the mm-hmm. guy's been shot. That's way more blood yeah. than you would have seen yeah. in most movies at that and, point. And it's, it's not like, it's not like comic red. It's, it's no. like, it looks like real, you know, blood, which... You know? I remember just like you would see articles on this movie with that with shots of like Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins. Oh my god, <laughs> Tim Roth. I'm so glad that they didn't cast Tim Robbins in this movie. Can we go for Tim Roth instead? <laughs> yeah. With Tim Roth, uh, Mr. Orange, lying in his that in the yeah, blood on blood. that ramp in yeah. the in the warehouse, just kind of squicking around in his own blood, like writhing. Well, that's pretty gory. I mean, yeah. like to me, that bothered me more than the torture scene. You know. I, For some reason, I don't know why. <laughs> about three minutes before the torture scene happened, I turned to you and said, "Do you know anything about this movie?" <laughs> because I just, I really can't believe that you didn't know about the ear scene. No, I didn't. I had no, I had no idea. I, I mean, I want to, I want to. You know how you like. So what you guys audience doesn't know is that if there, if there's like a horror movie or a really tense scene, and we're watching it at home. Um, Ashley sometimes has to get up and pace away. And so now I want to say she did not do that for this. So I'm not like presenting the wrong thing, but it, when I saw this in the movie, I saw this in the movie theater and Mm -hmm. we didn't know that was coming and you're stuck there in that chair. So you can see now you're (laughs) as an audience member, your decision is stick it out, close your eyes, hold real tight to the chair or get up and walk away. Which and a lot I, of people And so did. now I kind of understand. But Cannes Film Festival, people walk out all the time. Yeah. It's like on, on these controversial movies. Sometimes it's just like sex films and stuff like yeah. that. But, <laughs> but um, you could not get away. I'm wondering what that would have been like. Had This whole conversation seems like very weird because it's kind of like you're not seeing this in the right context because you didn't. Well, no, we I mean, it's just... We didn't have movies like this when well, I was kid. Well, essentially, because this movie and and the and Pulp Fiction changed the way cinema was, so, like, everything after that, my whole... It's it's different. When when did Naked come out again? Was it 92 as well? I think so. Yeah. Or 93. It's 93, the year after this. Okay, interesting. 
Because, like, the thing is, is that movie, I was more uncomfortable. Sorry, I'm loud. <laughs> um, Naked. I was more uncomfortable watching that than I was watching any, any of this. And that's because everything that we saw was so familiar to me. Well, another thing you know? is you came into this movie with all the Tarantino baggage. Yeah. It was a Tarantino movie. Yeah. There was no such thing as a Tarantino yeah, movie. Yeah, exactly. This was the first one. <laughs> so you didn't know what you were getting. Yeah. And I don't remember, I didn't read anything about the movie before I went to theater to see it, other than like it was being talked about. And it was like, you know, you look at the reviews, it's one of the ones that, that you were supposed to see. Yeah. But I just, like, you kind of go into this knowing the brand of Tarantino and the, the, his, his moves, his way with narrative, the kinds of actors he casts. A yeah. lot of these people would come back. I think Tim Robbins, Tim Robbins, what is it with Tim Robbins? <laughs> Tim Roth uh, is, and, and, uh, is back in Pulp Fiction, yeah. right? Um, well, apparently they wanted Michael Madsen back in the John Travolta role, but um, he chose to do Wyatt Earp instead. <laughs> So, you know, <laughs> he regrets that now. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> he Michael Madsen was good in, yeah. in, back then. Um, I'm, I that would have completely changed a num- like all of modern. This is like alternate timeline, right? Yeah. Because then you wouldn't have the John Travolta resurgence. <laughs> yeah, thing. essentially. And then we and never actually, have and you off. wouldn't have all those terrible like Tarantino knockoff movies yeah. with like I don't know if Travolta was actually in any of those. I think he was in some of them, but anyway, yeah. That's that's another conversation for another day. Well, I mean, and I want to say even with I, not to talk too much about his whole body of work, but you know, because I was in West Texas, which is like the last place to get an independent movie, so like Pulp Fiction would have been released whenever it was released and then gone through all the all the um you know, festivals and everything and the Academy Awards. I think it got nominated for some of those even. Um, and then it would finally hit theaters in Lubbock like a year and a half later. So by that time, you know, we'd been hearing about this movie. I'm pretty sure I saw it with my guy friends. So like there wasn't a time when I saw his films that I didn't know about the wunderkind that is, Mm -hmm. um, Quentin Tarantino. Like it was like, you know, big news. So like I even went into the first movie I saw from him with that, like, I think I went into this movie, um, knowing just that little bit that he was a guy who worked in a video store and Harvey Keitel like, yeah. <laughs> loved the script so much that he put up the money and starred in it. Mm. And that, so you just had this legend from the beginning. And that's what I knew it was that. And I knew it was like supposed to be amazing. It was low budget and it was really violent. Yeah. I don't know. My sister and I lo- loved it. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it was, it's interesting, but it does feel like proto- Tarantino, you know, you see all the elements there. Well, I was wondering if it yeah. feels like derivative of Tarantino, yeah. like because because <laughs> you could see this now, like I'm seeing it now through like the eyes of like 20, 30 years of Tarantino, thinking, "Wow, this is already all here." Well, you know, it's kind of like it's it's interesting to watch it because you know I have this sort of view of I think Wes Anderson and well Woody Allen as well um, that their films. They, they have, like, similar, similar elements that they explore all the time. And I think it's interesting that, you know, there's some directors that just, like, they direct one movie and it's completely different other than it's the same director. than But, like, Tarantino and Wes Anderson and Woody Allen, they kind of explore the same themes again and again and again, maybe in different ways. 
but they're still the same sort of themes that they always explored, you know? I want to say, though, that for its low budget and some of its clunkiness, that this is one of the most successful Tarantino movies, this Mm. first one. And also... I think the fact that it's only about 90 minutes long, an hour and a half, is perfect. And I wish he would trim trim (laughs) his movies down more often because this is such a pure, like, heist movie. I mean, you don't even see the heist, but it's just such a pure crime film. The pace is perfect. Yeah. It's like boom, boom, boom. (laughs) It's it's funny. To compare it to his other... um, my favorite of his films, Death Proof, um, which I don't know as, as as many people have have seen. It was released as that a, was the one that I had never seen. Yeah, until you showed it to until me. Until I showed it. So, to like audience, every once in a while, we talk about doing having to go back and do like a flashback <laughs> shot up and watch this because there's there are amazing movies that we already did this with and never got to do shows about. But Death Proof by Tarantino was one of the ones that like totally blew me away. It's just a really fun action movie. Yeah, it's it's awesome. But I mean, there's some there's some where he's gotten to where he's very indulgent with the conversation, like with the around the table conversation kind of thing. There's the conversations in cars, which he does all the time. There's the conversation at diners, which he does all the time. There's conversations at bars. I mean, like death proof. And then there's this fantastic action sequence at the at the end, which is amazing uh, with um, um Zoe Bell. Well, you know, but one of the things that he's always been really good at is the juxtaposition of moods. Yeah. Right. So this movie opens with this kind of long, indulgent, silly conversation (laughs) and you get a little bit of all of their personalities. Mm -hmm. You get Buscemi, Mr. Pink, like, no, I don't tip. I don't believe in it. I don't know. They should get a better job. The the long (laughs) explanations for uh, terrible behavior. Yes. Long (laughs) explanations discussion for why they're behaving that way but and then you immediately after the credit (laughs) sequence you go to boom bloody back car the heist has already happened you didn't even know there was a heist going you don't if you haven't didn't know anything about this movie you've got these guys meeting around a table they have breakfast together talking about nothing it's like seinfeld basically and then all of a sudden boom you're in the backseat of the car everything's gone wrong um tim roth is completely bloody all over the back dying and he sounds like Scooby-Doo. I mean, yeah, he's he kind of yelping in a, yeah. in a terrible way that I remember thinking was kind of funny yet horrifying. Yeah. And um, Kaitel is trying to keep him together. I, I don't know. I want to talk about that those characters and their relationship. Yeah, it's... Well, He they develop a bond. They don't know each other before, but he develops this, like, he feels like he owes him something, you know, because he was with him when he got shot or it was his fault that he got shot or something like that. So it's... You know, I guess that's a common trope is that, you know, like the it's the gangster with the with the hard well, gold or something like that. You know, I think that, you know, Kaitel's older than him. And mm. I think that it's not just a friendship, but there's almost like a mentor, almost a father yeah. son kind of thing that, the, you know, like he's kind of looking out for him. Yeah. And they're like he's really going try, really trying to comfort him. I mean, yeah. he, like Tim Roth, if he he's. If they can't get him to a doctor, he's going to bleed out and be dead in a few hours. And he's completely freaking out. And he asks him to hold him. And he does. And he asks and he, you know, lovingly combs his hair and like lies there with him. And um, it's really a great relationship. And again, one you're not used to seeing with two gangsters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's. 
It's interesting. I, 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 you know, I didn't realize that it was Harvey Keitel. But, like, one thing I was wondering is, like, well, why can't they take him to the hospital? So that gets really, that gets revealed eventually, you know, um, that they can't take him to the hospital because they were involved in that. That's what, how you find out that it was a heist is because it was involved in a heist and the police broke it up. So they're going to be looking for anyone who was injured with a gun at any of the hospitals. So that's why they can't, yeah. you know, take him to the hospital. But that's actually how they, I guess, how they reveal that there was a heist at all. Um. <laughs> So what do you think about the, like, the, the major focus of this movie are, are the relationships between, mm-hmm. the, between these characters? Do they trust each other? Can they trust each other? Who's going to betray who? Who's, who's psychotic? Who's um, yeah. reasonable but completely selfish and looking out for himself? I mean, how does this work in terms of maintaining your interest? Did it? I mean, does does, yeah. does it work as a story? Because we see things we admire about the filmmaking and the acting and stuff, but... Well, you know, one thing that I was thinking about when we're watching it is that... So, you know, the, the boss guy, what's the boss guy's name? The guy who looks like the thing? Yeah. Um, Joe. Joe. And, and his son, nice guy. Nice guy, Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. Chris Penn. As, so this is a family business. They're into doing heists all the time. They have a technique. They're supposedly professionals. And like, um, I think Stu Buscemi says it repeatedly. We're professionals. We're supposed to be professionals. So like, I'm very confused as to why they ended up shooting each other at the end. Because I thought that maybe that didn't quite work. I mean, like, I, obviously something had to happen. But, like, if these guys do this for a living, I mean, this is what they do, then it seems like they wouldn't be drawn into all the sort of... Well, they say they're professional, but the unprofessional stuff is what made the whole thing go wrong. Yeah. Because, uh, well, not... They brought a new guy in. Well, they brought a new... Who's the cop? They brought a new guy in (laughs) who actually is an undercover cop. Yeah. Okay? (laughs) And, but the other terrible mistake they made is hiring Mr. Blonde. Yeah. Michael Madsen. But and they trusted him because he They had... trusted him because, like, you get the impression that he grew up next to Nice Guy Eddie. Like, well, that he went been, to jail for them. He went to jail for them on another job. Yeah. They've known him for years. But he's a complete psycho, and I have, find it hard to believe that they don't, they don't know. Well, okay, Like, that so they're, bl- they're blind to what a wild card he is so because was, of his loyalty. Yeah. I was thinking about that because he's just been in prison for four years, five years or something like that. And like the fact that he chose to torture the cop, I think it has to do with some sort of treatment that I mean, like, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm, you know, putting some sort of some sort of psychological motivation for this that isn't there. But I was just thinking that maybe something happened to him in prison or when he was being arrested that made him especially not like cops. Okay, but it's not it's not just the torture because what went wrong. Part of what went wrong on the heist was that when they when the the employees at the store hit the alarm he, he methodically shot every Everyone, single yeah. civilian, every employee in the store. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. And that's the thing that Mr. Pink, Mr. White, and everybody yeah. is like, I can't believe you hired this complete psycho. We should yeah. have never, he should have never been on the job. Everything went to shit after that. The cops appeared. Then there's the argument about whether the cops are already there. Did, when did they come? Yeah. And, um, and again, the wonderfulness of not actually getting to see that scene, but hear them try and everybody has yeah. a slightly different memory of how it played out. Yeah. Well, and I have to wonder at, like, so, 
you know, this undercover guy, like, why didn't he, if they knew they were going to do that, why put the public in danger? Like, why didn't they, you know, why wasn't it enough to put them away, like, on the way to, you know, why did they even let it get to that? Anyway, that's like... Well, I don't think the plan was ever that it was going to be a bloodbath. So what happened was actually the presence of the cops brought on by the undercover cop leading the sting actually caused the guys to react in that awful way. Yeah. And then it became a shootout. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Because I don't think the plan involved (laughs) shooting anybody. No, no. You know? Well, they were supposed to be in and out in two minutes or something like that. So, well... I, I don't know if this is worth ranting about, but it's always diamonds. <laughs> I feel like I have an agenda to, to, to let people know that diamonds are a lie. <laughs> I, we should provide the citation to the Atlantic Monthly article in our show notes. So there is an article from 1981 that like completely tears down the diamond industry. So anyway, anytime in these movies, and it's a lot of movies, it's like a thing that's in all of them. They decide to, it's, it's in um, the John Cleese movie with uh, A Fish Named Wanda. Yes, a Fish Called Wanda. A Fish Called Wanda. Um, about diamonds being this thing that you can sell. Well, the thing is, is you can't sell diamonds. You can't make money off of it unless you actually are in the diamond industry. It's completely false. You know, there know. are no investment so, grade diamonds. Audience, so anyway, I was sitting here thinking, oh my God, Ashley's about to completely check out of this movie because she, because the diamond thing is going to throw her out. So I'm going to just say what I said last night. The diamonds are a MacGuffin. It doesn't yes, matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter what kind of store that they they held up. It's not a movie about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes. But I just think and it's also, a public service I can do for people. It is, is a explain, good public service. Explain and read the. But we'll, if you we'll post if, it, if most people don't know about this diamond, the diamond <laughs> industry, yeah, then it stands to reason that these thugs yeah, in this film noir movie don't, don't know, know anything about, about that either. Industry. So there it's you like, go. So yeah, all these people died for diamonds that they're not going to be able to resell at a at a decent price. So yeah. Anyway, so I want to ask uh, this. Steve Bushima got away at the end, didn't Mr. Pink? Oh, that's a question I yeah. wrote down. <laughs> Did Mr. Pink get away at the end? Or the, the police were on their way. They said they were, or the, yeah. before... <clears throat> I uh, mean, I haven't read much about this lately, and I don't remember thinking about <laughs> it back in the day, but last night I was left thinking, like, my impression of, of seeing this movie a number of times was always that Mr. Pink got away. But I don't know if it was our stereo system last night, while the final scene is playing out, the last confrontation mm-hmm. with Joe, Nice Guy Eddie, and all the yeah. and Harvey Keitel all with guns pointed yeah. at each other, in the background you can hear a standoff. You can hear something going on outside, mm-hmm. like the cops have arrived, and it sounds like they're saying, "Put your hands up!" And st-, you know that. I don't know okay. if I imagined that, huh. but it sounded like Mr. Pink was getting caught outside. Okay. But I think people usually interpret it as Mr. Pink got away. So I don't know. Audience, well, did Mr. Pink get away? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, you see him going out the door, and then it goes back to, it's Mr. White and Mr. Orange, yes? He leaves after they shoot each other, right? Yeah. So yeah, I, got, I got the time. Str- now I've messed with your interpretation yeah. <laughs> of... of- um, but, you know, and, and they, so you do hear the police coming in, and that's when Mr. White shoots Mr. Orange, yes? Mr. White is Keitel... Mr. Orange is Tim Roth. Yes. 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 It's when they, it's, that's exactly, sorry. It's the, it's the moment of you betrayed me. But it stands to reason because Mr. Pink just left. Yeah. (laughs) 
It stands the reason that they were outside waiting, and he well, got I caught. Well, I think we can know. go back and, but yeah. it's, I think you can hear the yeah. cops surrounding the place and something going on with Mr. Pink. But I don't know. We it's obviously it's left yeah. to interpretation. So some details I want to ask you about because mm. we're getting close to time. Yeah. Um, what did and we talked about a little bit about the unusual structure. How how do you think d- did the um like a flashback little mini short stories work for you with the like, here's Mr. Orange's story and here's Mr. Well, I'm like, I've not lived in a world where that wasn't a thing. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, yes, it worked. I think that they were a little clunkier than they got to be as, as Mr. Tarantino progressed in his. I just wonder if it plays as like padding or if it works in the narrative structure of the movie to a new viewer, because I can't see it through fresh eyes anymore. Well, to me, it read as, like I said, a little clunky, like the breaking up of things was a little, but I mean, like, it's like, it's not like it didn't make sense. It was just like, it wasn't as smooth of a flashback as, as there wasn't as good, you know, maybe they're just, maybe it's just a matter of like transition, like what the transition Mm -hmm. is. Um, it just felt a little clunkier than than you know I'm used to seeing. So, but I mean, otherwise it worked. I think my favorite like weirdness of this whole structure thing is the um, the flashback about the cop Tim yeah. Roth, where he has to learn the commode story. Yeah, <laughs> and so the structure is. Um, he's talking to his undercover partner and the guy says, did you use the commode story yeah. to talk your way? Yeah. So he's already talked his way into it. And then you flash back to the guy on the roof, giving him the script yeah. of this anecdote about a drug deal, um, to, re- to learn. Yeah. And then you see him rehearsing it in his apartment and pacing around. And then you cut to v- seamlessly to him in the bar, <laughs> telling the story to the guys and then you cut to a completely like dra- a dramatization of him in the bathroom in the anecdote, which didn't actually even happen yeah. to him. It's just the story yeah. he's telling. But you see him now in that scene as if he's sh- yeah. you're seeing that scene that he's telling in the anecdote. Only he's even talking yeah. in the bathroom with the cops standing around him telling the story still. Yeah, that's that's it's that was super cool. cool. Yeah. I mean, that was like, what is happening? That oh my god, cool. what is happening? Well. You know what's funny? So this is only tangentially related, but um, uh, on SNL, which I was watching when I was 11, um, they had the deep thoughts. And one of Jack Handy's deep thoughts is if you ever find yourself watching a flashback within a flashback, sit down, hold on and get ready for the ride of your life. Um, So I'm kind of wondering if it's related to this (laughs) in any way, but I don't know. I don't know. I want to say that uh, flashbacks came back in a big way yeah. with Tarantino. I mean, you again, you're you were seeing this craziness in like Fellini and you know in the '60s and the early '70s with all the like you know the new French New Wave and you know Godard and, and Fellini in Italy and uh, Antonioni and Bertolucci, but you were not seeing it in a film noir movie, yeah, or a modern noir. So something good happened when yeah. the nerd in the video store was bankrolled by, yeah. <laughs> by, by Harvey Keitel. Well, um, you know, he just, he kind of had like a, you know, he didn't have that big struggle period. Like he was going to make it in black and white, you know, and then all of a sudden he has a hundred and, you know, $1.5 million that he can make, you know, and he can hire quality actors. You know, is that Steve Buscemi's first movie? I don't think it was his very first movie, but it's really early for him. Mm-hmm. Like this was probably the first thing that 
put him on the map for yeah. for most people and one where I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Yeah. Because I remember he had, I, I can't remember, I'm fuzzy on timing, but he was in um, the early Coen Brothers, Barton Fink, which yeah. may have been around the same time. He had a bit part as Chet, the bellboy or whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then, um, but, so I don't think this is his first film. I, I don't know. I, first big role probably. Yeah, that's, I mean, he's... I mean, He's just one of my favorites. Kaitel had already been around for a while, but this was a new burst for his career yeah. because then he went into a bunch of other, you know, crime movies of the same ilk and mm. Bad Lieutenant was huge for him, The Piano, the Jane Campion movie. Yeah. I mean, he had a whole really interesting part to his career. Um, Michael Madsen, I don't feel like he stayed around much longer. He his other major role at the time was that I remember was um, Thelma and Louise. He was one of the guys. He was one of the guys okay. that they meet on the road, not uh, Brad Pitt, I, but the other guy, not Brad Pitt, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> Lawrence Tierney, the guy who plays the the big mm. mob boss, the old guy, was actually an actor from film noir from the forties. Yeah. Like his big role was he was in Born to Kill in nineteen forty seven, and he was like a legend of these yeah. like B movies. But Tarantino was unique in that his interests embraced both like weird French new wave story structure and like B movie crime. Yeah. And then like all that like schlock exploitation stuff. And you put it all together in one thing with his ear for dialogue. And all of a sudden you had like whatever the birth of this whole new era. Well, You know, one thing that I think is interesting about him is that like, and, and maybe because he changed things, but like, to me, all of this sort of mashup of stuff is a very internet thing. Like, yeah. it's very common now because it's easier to gather we all didn't that stuff We have that together. word mashup back then, yeah. but that's what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. But but he was able to do that, you know, back when there were, you know, you know, there was not internet, you know, or anything. There weren't, you know, massive chat rooms or, you it know. It was up here in yeah, his head. It was all the stuff that he saw and he was able to push it together and to make it something new you know this is pre-meme yeah yeah essentially I mean, yeah and it's pre mashup and um remix culture he well, was he was doing it's funny this. i remember you know guys in my high school doing the the big mac thing uh, or the whopper whatever the scene from even Pulp you know sampling other songs and yeah. hip-hop and stuff like that I mean, it, it's always been kind of been around, but yeah. not. But that's sort of what he's doing in movies too. Yeah. Like he's sampling influences, and you're seeing, you know, you, you down to where it's like this scene is familiar because Tarantino saw this in some crime movie five years before, or something like that. Well, and you know, his use of music, and I think there were a number of them around that time that started using music in that way. You know, using pop tunes that people were familiar with to sort of draw them into. Um, to, you know, I think Boogie Nights came out around the same time and it did the same sort of thing. They're well, using that music in that way. I don't you think know? this movie would be the same without K. Billy Supersound, yeah. Stephen Wright, <laughs> and all the cheesy 70s music. Yeah. The amazingness and the horror mm-hmm. of the cutting off the yeah. ear scene with Michael Madsen holding the razor blade and switching on um, what is stuck in the middle with yeah. you. And dancing over there, oh my God, you don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. Take an eye, you know, just, you don't know. And yeah. it's terrifying with that bouncy little song and mm-hmm. him kind of smiling as he walks over there. And then, of course, it's terrible and awful. Yeah, yeah. But then you survive it, just yeah. like the cop. Uh-huh. I mean, he doesn't ultimately survive yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but you get through that scene, audience. Mm-hmm. You make it through to the other side. And yeah. the guy is still talking. Yeah. Crying. Mm-hmm. Weeping. Begging. <laughs> 
Oh my which God. Ma- makes it worse. You yeah, know, which but, makes it yeah. even worse. <laughs> Did you read in the Wikipedia article, they said that um, some of the walkouts from that, that people walked out in that scene and two notable walkouts from that scene, I don't know if it was at a particular screening at yeah. Cannes or whatever, or Sundance, Wes Craven, yeah. director of Nightmare on Elm Street, and the funnier one, Rick Baker, who is the like movie makeup guy who yeah. did like American Werewolf in London and all yeah. those terrible, horrifying transformation practical effects, you yeah. know, with like skin peeling off and all that. They couldn't hack, they couldn't take yeah. it. And they did later say like, I just want you to know that our walking out there was a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> it was really, it was, the mood was too naturalistic. And yeah. so I couldn't take it. <laughs> yeah. It didn't have that. It didn't have an era of like super natural or yeah, no. it, it was, you know, just like if you were watching and that's another thing that's changed. So the casual gangster thing, the like gangsters being able to talk about normal things and then yeah, going be- off to do terrible because stuff. Because remember our major gangster <laughs> movies before that were the Godfather movies and yeah. how melodramatic are they? I mean yeah. they're they're like operas. I mean they're they're they play at kind of a higher level of emotion. Well, even the noir films, everything is heightened, yeah. you know. You know, it's they're never not talking about the crime, you know. Never stop, never stop it. I know. They they are always talking in noir films, which are great, but they're never like sitting there having a conversation about what they had for dinner, you know, anything like that. It's all, you know. Well, I always liked how Tarantino, Tarantino kind of gives you who these characters are other than yeah. just being characters. Yeah. Like they come into the scene with all of, like they watched Good Times on TV <laughs> yeah. last night or they, yeah. you know, they were sitting, they ate pancakes and, yeah. you know, read a, a Fantastic Four comic before yeah. getting together. That kind of thing. Um, I think we're about at time. Yeah. Is there anything we missed that I you... think we we got most of it. Do you have a favorite Reservoir Dog? I it's got to be Steve Buscemi. I, I love I love you know I just you know he, you know and he just he just seems so I mean he's he's a coward he's out for himself. He's Steve Buscemi, you know, you just... And again, it's like (laughs) proto-Steve Buscemi, like the first thing. Yeah. So a lot of these, I don't know if they typecast people for a while, or they kind of created our understanding of who that character actor is. Yeah. But I don't think Buscemi ever got loose of Mr. Pink. No, no. He took Mr. Pink into... I mean, he can do a lot, and we love a lot of his other movies, Ghost World being one of them. Yes. very different. But um, (laughs) yeah, me too. Mr. Pink is my favorite. Good old Mr. Pink. And he hates being called Mr. Pink. Does he? <laughs> yeah. No, not Steve Buscemi, oh. the character. He's like, okay. why do I have to be pink? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's a great scene. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I think we're, we're at record time again. Okay. So we're going to let you loose. If you're still listening to us, thank you for taking this r- wild ride through Reservoir Dogs again, if it's been a long time for you or if somehow you've never seen it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot still there. It's, it was really, I bet I haven't seen it in about 15 years, like yeah. 10 or 15 years. So it was a great to go back. Um, so if you, uh, want to, uh, drop us a line, tell us, uh, did Mr. Pink get away or any other feedback about the show? You can write us at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, search shut up, watch this podcast. Um, and, uh, we will be back in two weeks time. And uh, you tell your friends about the show. Any review you leave on iTunes elsewhere helps other people find us. Um, thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks.